Well, Philippians was a letter written by a man named Paul. Paul wrote this in about 62 AD. And he was most likely in a Roman prison or certainly under the, um, under the control of the Romans when he wrote this, sent this letter to the Christians who were living in Philippi, which is a Roman colony in the Macedonian area of Europe. And, you know, when we think about the person who wrote this, Paul, it reminds me of our vision statement here at Trinity. Our vision statement, why we exist, is to see gospel transformation, which is radical life change, Gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Every area of our lives that it would start in us, but that it wouldn't end there, it would also go through us and we would see change in every life in our area. And Paul is an incredible example of gospel transformation. If you're not familiar with his story, when we first meet Paul, he is someone who hates the church. In fact, Paul goes from being a persecutor of the church to a planter of churches who started churches all over the known world. Paul goes from being a self-righteous, religious snob who looked down on others to a man who near the end of his life publicly declared that I am the chief of sinners. He went from a man who would boast in his accomplishments and his achievements and his degrees and his pedigree to a man in Corinthians who said, I boast only in my weaknesses and in Christ. Paul went from being a hater of Jesus to a lover of Jesus. Gospel transformation. And one of the clearest evidences of the transformation in Paul's life is when he writes this letter to to the Christians in Philippi, he's sitting in Rome, awaiting execution. He's a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And yet, we will see that the overwhelming theme of this book is the word joy. That when the world would have stolen your joy, you can still have joy in Christ. Tremendous gospel transformation. And we believe at Trinity that that's what God has for every single one of us. That our lives would be radically turned upside down and transformed by the gospel. Becoming a Christian isn't just a slight adjustment to your calendar. I used to have my Sundays to myself, and now i got to give up an hour every Sunday. Becoming a Christian isn't just about having a different set of morals, a different ethic, or a different way of looking at life. Being a Christian isn't just about the people that you spend your time with. Being a Christian is supposed to inform every area of our lives, gospel transformation. And what we're going to see this morning in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 18, is that Paul gives us really the building blocks of gospel transformation. This morning as I go through these, you can be asking yourself, are these things true of me or are they increasingly true of me? And what we're going to see this morning, three things. Number one is that the gospel gives us confidence. Confidence. We already have heard that word this morning, right? Gospel confidence. Secondly, as we have more gospel confidence, we're going to see gospel growth. You and I are going to change. We're going to grow in love and we're going to grow in truth. And then the last thing we'll see is that as we grow in the gospel, we will have what I'm calling gospel endurance, which means even in the valley, we will learn to endure well because of who we are in Christ. So gospel, let's start with gospel confidence. I'm reading to you uh, verses three through eight from the ESV translation. Paul writes these words. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, you, are, you all are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, his current circumstances, 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Gospel confidence. Years ago, there was a golf course about 10 minutes north of here, and they had a deal. After 6 p.m., for $20, you got a golf cart and as many holes as you could play before it got too dark to play. It was a great deal for, 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 for me. And so my friend Andy Henderson and I, we would go up there and we would golf as often as we could. 20 bucks, a cart, and, as many, and it became kind of a challenge. Can we get all 18 holes in? None of us were good golfers. Neither of us were good golfers. So it was a real challenge to get 18 holes in before it got dark. But that was kind of our challenge every single time. And I, I actually text Andy was in the first service this morning. And I text Andy yesterday. So I'm going to tell this story about what happened on the golf course. And his response was four words. It wasn't my fault. We got a golf cart on this one day that was kind of had this weird thing about it. And you would step on the gas and it would just like, it wouldn't go anywhere. 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. And then finally it would take off as if it had been accelerating the entire time. So it went from zero to a hundred like that, but you never knew when it was going to do that. And we were, we were, it was getting dark. It was like the 14th hole and I wanted to finish all the holes and Andy was already sitting in the cart. I had just got done on the golf green. And so I was putting the flag back in the hole and I start, I saw the cart and I said to Andy, Andy, step on the gas now so that when I get there, this thing will be moving. This is a long time ago. I'm smarter now. Um, and so he's just as dumb as I am. And so he steps on the gas, and the, sure enough, the car's go. And so I run, I run to the cart, and I, I step up on the back of the cart so I can put my putter in the golf bag. And right as I go to put my putter in the golf bag, this demonic cart just takes off at full speed. And now I'm holding on to the cart with my left hand. I'm holding on to the putter with my right hand. And we are just flying towards the next hole. Now, this is where you can really be the judge of what happened next. Andy easily could have just taken his foot off the gas pedal and everything would have been fine. But instead, he just kept it floored. And so we're flying towards this next golf course. And I can see he's coming to a place where he's going to have to turn. And I know I'm going to fall off when he gets to that turn. And so I think I better just step off. The problem is that when you're going that fast and you try to step off of something, you don't land right. And so I stepped off and my feet immediately went flying out from underneath me. My head smashed into the ground. I was wearing glasses at the time. They flew off them. I watched my glasses just fly off into the air and I snapped my putter in half with my hands. I hit the ground so hard. And I was just rolling around. My head hurt so bad. I hear Andy coming back laughing. And uh, for the next two to three months, every night when I went to bed, the room would spin. So I'm pretty sure, I never went to a doctor's, but I'm pretty sure I had some level of a concussion. And the joke is, is I played a lot of sports growing up, and my worst injury ever happened on a golf course. <laughs> so I don't golf anymore. Um, and it's not just because of that. Uh, there's a few reasons I don't golf. It's an expensive sport. Uh, it's also a very time-consuming sport. And as my life filled up, it became harder for me to justify three to four hours on the golf course. But the main reason I don't golf is I'm a terrible golfer. I am a terrible golfer, and I have no confidence in my golf skills. And I know that if you ask me to go golfing, it will be two to three hours of just frustration and humiliation and embarrassment. And I may say something I regret saying in front of you. And, and so I just don't golf with one exception. I will still golf when someone says we're playing in a tournament and the format is captain and crew. Now, if you're not a golfer and you don't know what that means, basically it means you play the best shot in your group every single time. So all four of you will drive 
from the tee, but then you go to the best person shot and all hit from there. And then again, the next, next shot, the best shot you go. So it doesn't matter how bad you are, as long as you have good golfers in your group, as long as there's a captain, if you're just the crew member, you never have to play your shot. And that's the, only, that's the only way I will golf now is because I have no confidence in my ability to golf. But if you're a great golfer, I have confidence in your ability to golf. And as long as I don't have to play my shot and I get to play your shot all day, then I'll show up. Now, Paul is saying here that as we're being transformed by the gospel, we will find our confidence first and foremost in God's work on our behalf and never in our work on God's behalf. So in a way, we're not playing our own shot in our spiritual faith. We're playing Jesus' shot. Our faith is not in our ability. Our faith is in Jesus' work and what he has accomplished for us. Salvation is God's work on our behalf, and our confidence must rest in that truth. If your confidence in Christ rests upon your performance, what kind of a life is that? You're going to have days where you feel really great, and then you're going to have days where you feel really terrible. You're going to be sure there are days that God is proud of you and loves you, and then there's going to be days where you think, I don't think he loves me anymore. But if our confidence is in what God can do for us and not what we can do for God, there is a certainty that undergirds our walk. And Paul says it this way in verse 6. He says, I am sure of this. So Paul is saying, what I'm going to say next, I am certain of, I am confident in. And what he says is, is that he, speaking of God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad Paul doesn't say, I'm sure of this, Philippians, that you got it in you and you can do this. And if you try really hard and if you're really good, then you'll be saved at the day of Christ's return. I'm so glad Paul didn't say that. That'd be bad news for you and me. Instead, Paul says, my confidence is in what God is doing in you and through you. It's his work. In other words, Paul is infinitely more sure of God's commitment to the Philippians than he is of their commitment to God. And it's enough for him to say, God will bring this work to completion. See, genuine spiritual progress and confidence is rooted in what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do on our behalf. And so when we grow and when we see things in our lives, we celebrate not ourselves, right? If you're becoming more like Christ, if you're becoming more patient, more loving, more generous, we don't celebrate ourselves, we celebrate God because it's his work in us and through us. And when I see changes in your lives and gospel transformation happening in you, I celebrate God's work in you and through you. There's some of you that are sitting in this room this morning that a year ago, you would have never been sitting in a church. And yet here you are. You know why? Because God's at work. He's faithful, and he's working in you. Some of you are giving generously now in ways that you wouldn't have given two years ago. Why? Because of God's work in you. Some of you are gone from being consumers of church to contributors in church, and you're serving and you're sacrificing. Why? Because God is at work in you. And so when we celebrate even growth within us, we're not celebrating ourselves, patting ourselves on the back. We're celebrating God's faithfulness to do what he said he will do. Now, how often throughout the course of your week do you take a moment and remind yourself of God's unwavering commitment to you? When's the last time that in the midst of a difficult moment you reflected upon, God, you are so committed to me. You're so faithful to me. That's where we find our gospel confidence in Christ's work. 
But Paul also mentions something else that can give us confidence. He talks about the deep relationships that he has with the Philippians. Now, this church in Philippi, if you read in Acts chapter 16, Paul never intended to go to Philippi. It was not on his itinerary. He was not going there. He was going somewhere else. In Acts chapter 16, Paul has this vision of what he calls the Macedonian man who calls Paul away from his plans and says, come on over to Macedonia. And Paul obeys the leading of the Spirit, and he's divinely drawn to Philippi where he meets a woman and other women like her named Lydia who was an influential, uh, sort of affluent woman in Philippi. And she's a God-fearer, but she doesn't know the gospel. He tells her the gospel. She places her faith in Jesus. Lydia becomes one of the leaders in the church in Philippi, along with many other women actually, had significant leadership roles within the church in Philippi. Philippi is where Paul and Silas are imprisoned for ruining a person's fortune-telling business because they free the slave girl who was their fortune teller from demonic possession. And so the owners of the fortune-telling business realize there goes our business, there goes our income. They get angry. They get Paul and Silas thrown into jail. It's in that jail that night in Philippi where at midnight, Paul and Silas are singing praises to the Lord when the Lord sends a supernatural earthquake, which does nothing more than freeze the prisoners from their bondage. And instead of running off, Paul and Silas use it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to a Philippian jailer whose life and his household's lives are changed and turned upside down by the gospel. This is Philippi. Paul remains there, and he probably visited many other times. And Philippians, the Philippians were financial supporters of Paul. And in this book, six times, Paul uses the Greek word koinonia, which means gospel friendship, partnership. In verse 3, he talked about partnership in the gospel. In verse 7, he said that you are partakers with me of grace. And the Philippians were with Paul in the good times from day one, he said, all the way to the bad times. In fact, Paul says, even in prison, you stand with me. In the ancient Near Eastern world, being imprisoned was a source of great shame. Everybody just assumed that the authorities were correct in what they were doing. And so it would have been easy for the Philippians to say, oh, we should disengage or distance ourselves from Paul. He's an enemy of Rome. We're a Roman colony. The last thing we can afford is to be enemies of Rome. They have all the power, but they didn't. They stood with Paul. And you know what it did for Paul? It gave him confidence because he wasn't alone. So gospel confidence comes from two places. First and foremost It comes from knowing that God's work will be finished. The work he begins in you, he's faithful to complete. But secondly, we can actually, here's the the beautiful thing about being the family of God, we can actually give each other confidence. How? By walking walking with each other through the good times, walking with each other through the bad times, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Gospel confidence comes from above, but also it's a gift we can give to each other. The second thing that we see here is gospel growth. Verses 9 through 11, let's look at this together. Paul says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice what Paul prays for here. He's praying for more and more love, that the love of the Philippians would abound. And that's not unique. The prayer for people to love one another is a common prayer in the New Testament. But what we have to notice here, what is unique about Paul's prayer, is that in this case, he qualifies that love. 
He defines that love. And how does he do it? Look at this in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. We've got to spend a couple minutes here because this is actually very, very helpful for Christians, I think, to understand what Paul is saying here. Love for others, if it's not accompanied by knowledge, which means truth, and discernment, which means knowing how to love other people practically, then it's not the love that Jesus wants for us. One of the commentaries says that knowledge means a sensitivity to God's truth, knowing what God says about issues, matters, and holding to God's truth, and discernment means understanding the needs of other people and understanding the situation. So it's bringing together the truth of God's word with an understanding of what people need and how people will receive God's truth and then loving them in that way. But the truth is, is that I think often in the Christian world today, we don't do both. We, we tend to do one or the other. Now, knowledge, again, this is loving others in a way that recognizes God's truth and does not compromise truth on a misguided attempt to be nice or to keep the peace. But discernment is how do we do this in a way that is well-received. Love without knowledge is unwilling to hold to the truth if it's uncomfortable or not popular. Love without discernment turns truth into a weapon that you attack others and beat them with. And most Christians tend to fall into one camp or the other. They either say, I love people so much, I'm, I'm not going to speak the truth on certain issues. And then there are other Christians who say, I love them, or I'm going to love them with truth, but really they're just using truth as a weapon to attack them, to belittle them, and in some ways to feel better than them. So how do we do this together? There's a bit of a maybe trigger word in our society right now, and the word is tolerance. Tolerance. And some people love the word and some people hate the word. And it really comes down to how you define the word. But for years, tolerance meant this, that every single person who has an opinion or a thought has value regardless of their opinion or, value, or, or thought. So equal value and equal voice. You should have a voice. doesn't matter what your gender is, your ethnicity is, your socioeconomic standing, your political views, your religious views. You have a voice, and you should get to use your voice because you are a human being created in the image of God, so you have inherent dignity, value, and worth. So every person's opinion was allowed to have equal value, and everyone was allowed to have equal voice. That's one way of defining tolerance. But over time, it's actually changed. And now we live in a world where tolerance actually means that every opinion is equally valid or equally true. That's a very different thing, right? That's very different. Equally valuable and equal, equal voice is one thing. But equally valid means that it doesn't matter what you think. It's true if it means something to you. It's your truth. And we actually live in a world where something is true if you believe it sincerely enough, if you believe it passionately enough. And that doesn't actually work in any area of life, does it? If after church I was saying, to, if I gathered five of you together and said, hey, i got to drive from here to Buffalo after this service, what's the fastest way to get to this location? And five of you gave me five different sets of directions. Are they all equally valid? Of course not. One is going to be the fastest of the five. We know that when it comes to truth claims, when they compete with each other or conflict with each other, they can't both be true at the same time. Something, so where do we go for truth? 
And Jesus said, I am the truth. And he said, the devil is the liar, a liar and the father of lies. And so we live in a world which increasingly says there is no truth or it's your truth or your experiences and your emotions can determine what you believe to be true. And the problem is, is that there is a whole part of the church world that is beginning to say, I, don't, I know God's word says this, but I really feel this way. And emotions and experiences, they're good clues, but they're, they're not a good map. And so I'm not against people having experiences and emotions and empathy, but it doesn't mean that there isn't still truth. On the other hand, some people just use truth to batter people and leave them wounded and hurting. So what is Paul saying? He's saying you gotta thread the needle. You love with truth and discernment. You do both. And by the way, you'll never do this if you don't have gospel confidence. And here's why. Because without gospel confidence, you'll, you'll be driven either by the need to be liked or the need to be right. Your confidence will not come from Jesus. It will come from either being liked by people or being right in front of people. And if your confidence, some of you are wired to be liked, and you're going to tend to like kind of compromise on the truth. Some of you are wired to be right, and you're going to compromise on grace and discernment and knowing how. So how do we thread the needle? We have to have gospel confidence. We have to know that we are approved by the Father, secure in the Father, and righteous before the Father because of the work of Jesus. And our need to be liked and our need to be right is resolved in Christ's work on our behalf. And what's at stake here, by the way, is the loss of, this is not just about being right or wrong or being a good Christian or bad. What's at stake here is actually mission effectiveness. Because if you will not stand for truth, you will lose your voice in this culture. However, if you use truth recklessly as a weapon, you will have no platform to stand on to actually minister to people who don't agree with you. So this is, I hope you feel this tension. If you're not feeling this tension, you're probably very much on one side or the other of this. But I feel this tension as a pastor all the time. And so what are we doing as a church to try to thread the needle? Three things. Number one, we try to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing for the Christian faith is the gospel. Listen, Paul said that the gospel of Jesus has the power to save. My opinion on these other issues, while it may matter, it doesn't have the power to save. My political views do not have the power to save. My moral stance does not have the power to save. My uniquely Christian ethic does not have the power to save. It's the gospel of Jesus that has the power to save. And we can get people to agree with us on social issues, but if they don't encounter the gospel, what have we really done? What people really need is an encounter with Jesus. So at Trinity, we are committed to keeping the main thing the main thing. We will preach the gospel week after week after week faithfully because we believe it is the only message that actually saves people. The second thing that we do is we invite people to belong before they believe. I hope you know that there are people in this church that don't believe like you in certain areas. But we're going to invite them to belong because one of the most powerful evangelistic tools is the beauty of Christian lives and the beauty of Christian community. And what a shame if we exclude people from our lives and our community because they don't think the way we think. They don't believe exactly what we believe. People can belong here before they believe. And the last thing is that we, will, we are committed as a leadership to have conversations more than making statements. It's actually very easy to make statements. All you need is a microphone. You know, all you need is a Facebook account. It's very easy to make statements. But you know what statements are? They're always made from a distance and they always divide. Do you know what conversations require? Relationship, proximity, and time. 
So as a church, as church leaders, and as a, as a lead pastor of this church, I have regular conversations with people about issues that I would consider peripheral to the gospel as we're trying to create a disciple-making environment. We are having difficult, regular conversations about social issues and stuff, but we're not making statements from a platform for the most part because we do not believe that is the most effective way to make disciples and to keep the main thing the main thing, nor do I think it's what Paul has in mind here when he says, abound more and more in love with truth and discernment. Is this helpful or make sense at all? It makes sense to me, but it took me a while to wrap my mind around it. I hope it makes sense to you. And the purpose of this love that Paul is describing is to approve what is excellent, and the result of this love is moral purity and completeness. So life change is the result here. Gospel growth will happen as we are faithful to love one another in truth and with discernment. All right, last point this morning, gospel endurance. So there's gospel confidence, who we are in Christ. There's gospel growth, which requires love, truth, and discernment. And then that leads to gospel endurance. Let's finish this passage, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, when this letter was sent to the, the church in Philippi, they would have read it publicly in a setting like this. And when that sentence was read, I bet the room, there would have been audible gasps. What? What has happened to me? He's in prison, isn't he? He's been in prison. He's under the control of the Roman Empire. And yet Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me is actually served to advance the gospel. What a kingdom perspective Paul has here. That the, the most powerful empire of the world thinks they have me wrapped up, but all they've done is set the stage for the gospel to be advanced. It's incredible. Verse 13, it has become known through the whole imperial guard. The imperial guard were the elite soldiers who were directly under Caesar. They were the ones that Paul was being watched by. That's a sort of criminal that they thought that he was. And yet he had an audience with the most elite influential men in Rome. Men that he never would have been able to share the gospel with if he was not arrested and imprisoned. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, now he's talking about other believers, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. So instead of the imprisonment causing people to shrink back and be afraid, it's giving them boldness and confidence because they're seeing Paul suffer for the gospel. He says they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some do preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul is painting a picture of something very specific that's happening. There are some people who are preaching the gospel and doing it in support and with love for Paul. And there are some that are doing it in spite of Paul and actually rubbing it in Paul's face and actually believing that in some way Paul is lesser because of his imprisonment. Verse 18, how does he handle this? being misunderstood, mistreated, talked about, his name dra dragged through the mud. Maybe you've been there. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, so he's like, whether the motivations are good, whether the motivations are bad, if Christ is proclaimed, I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. This is amazing. I hope you're feeling this. Paul, sitting in a Roman prison, hearing stories about other preachers of the gospel who are trashing him, dragging his name through the mud, 
And yet Paul, for not a second, loses his joy. He endures. Why? Well, there was a lot here, but I want to summarize it in two words. Because of certainty and clarity. Okay, here's the certainty. Paul had certainty that God uses all things for his purposes. Paul said it. Listen, the Romans think that they've shut me down, but all they've done is give me access to people that I never would have had access to before. So whatever life throws at you, let me apply this for us real quick. Whatever life throws at you, whatever circumstances, maybe all of a sudden you find yourself, you get a medical diagnosis, you find yourself having to go to the hospital regularly, having to see a doctor regularly. Maybe you lost the job that you wanted, and now you find yourself working in a new place. Wherever you go, whatever doors the Lord opens for you, there's gospel opportunities in those environments. Having a daughter with special needs and a physical disability has brought us as a family into communities and into relationships with people that we otherwise never would have known. And yet the Lord is using even that sort of a lifelong struggle to advance the gospel. He will do his work, and Paul had that certainty. And not only was it advancing amongst non-Christians, it was advancing within the Christian community where the Christians were having increased boldness because they saw Paul suffering for the faith. I bet all of you at some point in your life have gained strength by seeing somebody else suffer well, have gained confidence by watching somebody else go through something and hold on to Jesus, and it stuck with you, and it encouraged you, and it strengthened you. That's what Paul was certain of, but not just certainty. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Paul also had clarity, and his clarity was what's worth actually fighting for. He wasn't going to fight about things that didn't matter. Paul could have dragged those people's names through the mud. He could have named them in this letter. Because it had nothing to do with these people. I mean, listen, if somebody was preaching the gospel and talking badly about me, I would at the very least be tempted to tell my closest friends, and these are Paul's closest friends, I would be at the very least tempted to say to them, stay away from that person. Or, or trash them, why don't you? Or they're not perfect either, so why are they saying? Paul's not going to get caught up in that. Why? Because he said, whether they preach it for the right reason or the wrong reason, if Jesus is being preached, I can rejoice in it. That's amazing. You know what that, you know what I thought this week? That frees you and me from being the motivation police. We don't have to police the motivations of people's hearts. We see somebody else doing something in the church or serving, we don't have to decide in our hearts, are they doing it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? We see people who show up every week, we don't have to, we don't have to wrestle with that. It doesn't matter. We're not responsible for that. God knows our hearts. God knows their hearts. And we can trust in God, that he uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will, right? The line is that he uses crooked pencils to draw straight lines. And this is what God does. He uses us despite our imperfections. And Paul was not going to get distracted or discouraged or exhausted by people who were doing the right things for the wrong reasons. He just said, if Jesus is getting the glory, then I don't care if I don't get the glory. Bring the shame to me. If Jesus gets the glory, I'm fine. And what a, what a community of people we would be as a church if that was our shared heart. I don't need the glory. I don't need the attention. If Jesus is getting the glory and if the gospel is advancing, then I can rejoice in any circumstance, sitting in prison, awaiting execution. I can find joy because my life is not about me. My life is not, I've not been sent and spent for my glory. I am being sent and spent for the glory of Jesus, the only one who is worthy. There's no gospel endurance if there's no gospel growth. And there's no gospel growth if there's not gospel confidence. And that's what Paul is telling us in this passage. Gospel transformation is possible because God's at work, because his love and truth will guide us, and because he will give us the perspective and the strength to endure anything. 
Let's pray together.